Good morning. There I am. You can hear my voice. If you open up your scriptures to Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away uh, to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of, power, of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his own lips. Who is Jesus? It's probably the most important question person can ask themselves. There's a famous book uh, by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. And the first line of the book in the first chapter starts by saying this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's a famous quote, and I'm sure many of you have heard it before. I was planning on using it this morning as I was studying throughout the week. I always thought this quote was about the individual, though. I've read the book a few times, but I went back as I was looking for the quote and and kind of read the first chapter again. Tozer Tozer was talking about a community. That's why he uses uh, the plural personal pronouns, ours and us. Our mind and, and us. He was talking about the church. Sadly, I believe there's many, many, many churches in our society that do not have a biblical understanding of God or Jesus. In other words, what comes to their minds when they think about God or Jesus is not the God or Jesus of the Bible. So my question this morning for our church, for COBC... What comes into our minds when we think about God? Because this is the most important thing about us as a church. Who is Jesus? I really believe to answer that question, we should ask another question. Who did Jesus claim to be? This makes our passage this morning extremely important because Jesus was in front of the Sanhedrin getting questioned and they were asking him, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And in this short passage, we see three titles commonly used for Jesus. Christ, Son of Man, and the Son of God. So I want to take some time this morning and and look at these three titles. Before we get there, I just want to give some context of the passage uh, we're in. This is early Friday morning. Jesus was arrested. He was taken to an illegal 
Jewish trial, and he was questioned all night and early into the morning. Their goal was clear, to find a reason to put Jesus to death. They even brought in false witnesses. They beat him. That's what we see in verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him. As they beat him, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the morning, right, when light came, they brought him to an official trial before the Sanhedrin. And that's our passage this morning. It's that trial, the official trial before the Sanhedrin. And in this passage, there's three divine titles that are used for Jesus. Jesus as the Christ or Messiah. Jesus as the Son of Man. And Jesus as the Son of God. So that's our three points that we're going to be going over this morning. Starting with Jesus as the Christ or Messiah. And I just want to make clear that those, those words are the same word. Christ and Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. And, and Messiah is the Hebrew word. They're the same word, just different languages. So I'm going to be using throughout this sermon, Christ and Messiah interchangeably. The same word though. Look at verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. The Sanhedrin pretty much was asking Jesus, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? The Sanhedrin badly wanted Jesus to confess with his own mouth that he was the Christ, the Messiah, which is, is interesting, right? Remember, their whole goal, the whole entire night, was try to find a reason to put him to death. They, they, were, they didn't care about the truth, and that's been clear for this whole entire week, and we've been going over this. They didn't care about the truth. They, they've already judged Jesus in their own heart. They were just looking for a reason to put him to death. So they're trying to get him to confess that he was a Messiah. And, and the reason that's interesting is because the word Messiah, the, the title Messiah or Christ, wasn't necessarily blasphemy. It was a man that was expected to come. In other words, it wasn't worthy of death according to Jewish law. So why were they trying to get him to confess Messiah? Well, it wasn't worthy of death according to Jewish law, but that title could easily get you in trouble with the Romans. Remember, that's a title of kingship. It's, it's a title that sounded like a rebellion. Roman, Rome probably, probably didn't care, or didn't care that much if Jesus claimed to be God. But Messiah, that, that could be a big deal. The Sanhedrin was thinking, if we can get him to claim that he's the Messiah we might be able to get him in trouble with the Romans. And maybe we could even get him crucified. But here's the problem. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but throughout the gospel, all the gospels, Jesus avoided using the title Messiah. It's not that he didn't claim to be the Christ or Messiah. And he did in places throughout the gospels. He just rarely claimed it especially from his own lips. 
and never in a public way. I think it's partly why people were confused about Jesus. Remember Mark 8, and I've gone over this passage a bunch of times because it's a very important passage in the Gospels. This is what it says, Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the valley of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Right? Who, who's all, this, all the Jewish people, all the crowds, who do they say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. In other words, no one claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And I told you there's a reason for that. It was a bold claim, but there's another reason. Jesus himself didn't publicly claim to be the Messiah. Verse 29 says, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus pretty much says, yes, you got it. I am the Christ, right? This is what he says in Matthew 16, 16. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, that's the right answer. So let me be clear. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He just rarely to never did it publicly. I mean, listen to what he says in Mark eight thirty. After this proclamation after saying, yes, I am the Messiah. He tells them this, the disciples, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In other words, he told them, yes, I I am the Christ. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. And you see this over and over again in the Gospels, especially Mark. Jesus will heal someone and tell that person, don't say anything. Don't tell anyone that I healed you. Jesus will cast out a demon. The demon will start talking, claiming that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and he'll stop him and say, stop talking. You can't talk anymore. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you have the three disciples. They're coming down after that amazing experience, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. Why? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. Because people had a false understanding of who the Messiah was. One commentator put it this way, Jesus rarely asserted uh, um, his uh, messianic title and generally avoided the term Messiah or Christ because the title was so politicized. In Jesus' day, the title was not generally thought to be a divine title, but that of an agent, uh, anointed agent, in other words, that of a human being. Descended from the, the divinic royal line, remember, a king from the line of David, who would cast out the Romans and restore Israel. And that's exactly what the people of Israel wanted. In other words, in the time of Jesus, people thought the Christ would be an anointed man from the line of David, used by God to overthrow the Romans, a warrior that would establish the kingdom of Israel and sit on the throne, an earthly geopolitical king. And that wasn't Jesus. He was the Son of God who came to die for our sins. Therefore, he stayed away from the title Christ and or Messiah. And he told the disciples, don't tell anyone that I am the Messiah until, and this is important, don't tell anyone. He came down the Mount of Transfiguration. He tells the disciples, don't tell anyone about this until the resurrection. And then go tell the world. Because at that point, people will understand what I truly came to do. 
He didn't use the title Christ in his earthly ministry, the three years he walked with the disciples. Instead, he preferred a different title, the Son of Man. That's our second point today. Jesus as the Son of Man. This is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, on this title, the Son of Man. Look at verse 69 in the 22. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This title, Son of Man, it's a very, very interesting title for at least three reasons. First, in the gospel, the title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of labeling himself. In fact, it's it's the only title he freely used. He used it over 65 times. In other words, you want to know who Jesus claimed to be? Well, he claimed to be the Son of Man. The second reason this title is interesting is the title is not used by anyone else. There's no evidence in Acts or the epistles or even extra biblical documents that the early church called Jesus the Son of Man. It seems like Jesus is the only one that claimed to be the Son of Man and no one else talked about him, even to this day. How many worship songs do you hear that, that claim him being the Son of Man? I can't think of any, and I'm sure someone will come and tell me there's three or four, but it's a title we don't use, even to this day. Third reason why this is interesting is up to this point, the the night of Jesus' arrest, when Jesus used the title Son of Man, he gets absolutely no reaction by people. No one's offended, no one's shocked, no one's excited. There's just no reaction. Positive or negative. So what does this title mean, and why did Jesus use it so much? Well, to answer this, we need to look at the Old Testament. Jesus' whole ministry was founded on the Old Testament. And this title in the Old Testament is actually used pretty often. Son of Man. Here's a few examples. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Isaiah 51, 12. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man, who is made like grass. Right? You see, see, man and Son of Man as synonymous in this passage. And, and for the most part, this is how it's used. Let me give you another example. Isaiah 56, 2. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast. In other words, man and Son of Man. It's just restating the same term, which just means man. Or Jeremiah fifty forty. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and and their neighboring cities, declared the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. Or my favorite one, Job 35, 6. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? Over and over again, we just see man and son of man as synonymous. It's a term that just means human. I'm just human. I'm a son of man. It's, it's a, it has a sense of humility. I'm just a, just a son of man. I'm nothing special. In fact, the book of Ezekiel uses it 93 times to show that Ezekiel is just a man. It's a term. It's a title for Ezekiel. Right? He's nothing special. He's just a man. He's a son of man. And because of this, I'm guessing, in the Old Testament use, it's probably why no one had any reactions when Jesus used it. 
people thought Jesus was just humbly saying, hey, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. It may be even why people thought he was a prophet. I mean, think about that. He did these crazy miracles. Right? He spoke boldly like a prophet, like he was speaking for God. And he called himself the son of man like Ezekiel. I'm just a man, right? But the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus showed the religious leaders, the Jewish nation, and the entire world that he meant something radically different than I'm just a man. Look at verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Listen, this, this one phrase, yeah, this one phrase is so deep. I was tempted, and I was tempted to do a three-week series on just this one verse. And I'm not joking, and, and I, I got first service out on time, so I promise you. We'll... <laughs> this one verse, you should have seen my office this week, honestly. I, I, I had books I went home one night and came back the next morning. I just didn't realize it. And I turned on the light and I had just these massive theology books just lying around everywhere. Like my desk was full. My little side desk was full. They were on the ground. I ride my bike to church and and home a couple days a week. And I had these books, these massive theological books. I just couldn't stop reading about it. And so I had them in my backpack trying to ride home. This one verse is one of the deepest theological statements in all of Scripture. It's the second time Jesus makes this statement, right? Earlier that morning, that night, right, before it became daytime, he says the same thing, but I think it's a little clearer. So if you would turn to, to, with me to Matthew 26, verse 30, or 63. Matthew 26, verse 63. There's something that happens, listen, in these two verses— that we as Westerners don't get. I heard, a, I heard an anthropologist that, that understand Eastern culture really well that was talking about this passage, and, and, and we just don't get exactly what happened, especially this part, the very first line, but Jesus remained silent. And that was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would be put on trial and he would remain silent. But that action right there had a cultural significance that I just can't explain. But I can tell you this much. Everything changes after these two verses. Everything changes after these two verses. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him in in disbelief, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Profound, deep, meaningful statement. Listen, I believe this this one statement changes everything. This one statement sealed Jesus' fate, the cross. I mean, look at the high priest's reaction. The next verse, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? We don't need any of these false witnesses anymore. We need nothing else. He's done it. He deserves death. 
You now heard the blasphemy. Verse 66. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. From this point on, the Jewish nation turns on Jesus. Think about this, right? Just a week earlier, Palm Sunday, thousands of people worshiping, shouting, Hosanna, son of David, you're our king, throwing their shirts down, saying, right over us if, if necessary. After this statement, in a few hours, they'll be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This night, this, this one statement, I believe, is the turning point. What did Jesus say that was so shocking? Well, he quotes two, two Old Testament passages in this statement. And in so doing, he gives meaning to the title, Son of Man. This title that he's been using for three years freely, he wasn't saying, I'm just a man. Turn with me to, to Psalms 110. First passage he quotes from the Sanhedrin is Psalms 110. Remember, this is what he said. The Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Right, the right hand of power. Matthew is a Jew and he's writing to Jews. And Jews did not like to use the name of God, especially Yahweh. But even the, the word the, theos, God. So, so Matthew avoided it. So by saying the right hand of power, he replaced God with power. But everyone knew that he was talking about God. At the right hand of God. At the right hand of Yahweh. That's a direct quote from Psalms 110, which says, The Lord, you see how it's all capitalized, L-O-R-D. That means Yahweh. In other words, it could just be translated. Yahweh says to my Lord, that's not capitalized. So that's Adonai in, in Hebrew. Yahweh says to Adonai, Adonai means Lord, Master, or King. In other words, this should be, could be translated. Yahweh says to my King, or my Lord, or my Master, sit at my right hand. That's what Jesus quotes. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Just a reminder who the author of this is, of course, is David writing. He's talking about a future King, but Jesus makes a very interesting observation about this passage earlier in his ministry, about Psalms 110. This is what Jesus says. Don't turn there, but this is in Mark 12, 35. He says, How can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David, when David himself, in the Holy Spirit, in other words, inspired by God, declares, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? In other words, Jesus makes his observation. This king talked about in Psalms 110 is greater than David. Because David calls him master. He calls him king. He calls him Lord. And he existed before David. That's pretty amazing. But look what else Psalms 110 says. Yahweh is telling this coming king, sit at my right hand. That's pretty incredible within itself. Until I make your enemies your footstools. So this king will sit at the right hand of Yahweh. Not only that, look at verse 4. The Lord, again, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We could spend a whole entire sermon on that. 
we will, we, we will do a sermon on what, Psalms 110 one day. But, but not only is this king keen, he'll be priest forever. So when Jesus said, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, he, he boldly proclaimed who he was. He was saying, I am the king of Psalms 110, who existed before David, will be king forever, will sit at the right hand of God forever, will be priest forever. I mean, just think about that. How ironic is that? Jesus, getting questioned by the high priest, is saying, you're not the high priest. I am in this one statement. Oh, there's so much more we can do in Psalms 110, but I want to look at the second passage that Jesus quotes. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a quote from Daniel 7. If you could turn there real quick. Daniel 7. By adding this phrase, coming on the clouds of heaven, to the title, Son of Man, Jesus makes it very clear that when he uses the title, Son of Man, he's talking about Daniel 7. Let me give you some context to this passage. Daniel is having another vision given to him by God. Verse 3 says, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And so he has this vision of these four beasts that come out of the sea, and it's, and it's very clear that these are four kings and their kingdoms. That's what they represent. They're four kings and their kingdoms are represented. They're four world powers. Verse 4, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Right? The first beast was this lion, which represented the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. And the first one was like a lion. The second one's like a bear. It's a Medo-Persian king and kingdom. He took over the, the Babylonians. Verse 6. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard. Right, the third beast is like a leopard. This is Alexander the Great and the Greek kingdom. And verse 7, a fourth beast. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. The fourth beast, there's, there's no animal that can describe it. This beast is, is nothing like Daniel has seen before. It was just terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It's the Roman emperor and the Roman empire. Four beasts that are ravaging the earth. Right? They're beasts. That's why they're called beasts. They're like wild animals. I was riding my bike. I don't remember what it was. Last week, I think. And it was out in Stanley Springs, and there was this herd of elk, like 20 or 30 of them, all female, going across the street, and one massive, are they called bucks if they're male? Like deer? Bull. One massive bull. That's a good description, actually. That had followed them and then stopped in the middle of the street, and I was like sitting there looking at this thing, and it was looking at me. And I'm like, well, I need to get past you. And we just stare. Cars would go by, and he could care less about the cars. He was just staring at me. 
I guess he's used to cars and wet. There was a Honda Civic that drove past him, and seriously, he was, he was like twice the size of this Honda Civic. And so I turned around and left. I mean, I don't know what that thing's going to do. <laughs> Listen, that was an elk. This is talking about bears, leopards, and lions, right? Ravaging the earth, wild animals. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. One like a son of man with the clouds of heaven. Right? This king, this king looked like a human. He wasn't a beast. This king is, was human. He was civil. He's just. Not a beast like the other. Not, not terrorizing the world like the other world powers, like the other kings that were in power. This king is like a son of man, like a human. And he came with the clouds of heaven. For us, that might not mean a whole lot, but for a Jew, there's this close connection in the Old Testament that's very clear between three things. God riding on clouds and justice or judgment. God, clouds, judgment. Right? Three things that are very closely connected. Let me just give you some examples. Psalms 97.2. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him, which is God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Right? Clouds, God, justice. Psalms 104.3. He, being God, lays the beams of his, of his chambers on the waters... He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. In other words, God rides in a chariot that's made of clouds. Isaiah 19.1 An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, is riding on a swift cloud. He's riding on clouds. And comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at the, this, his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. In other words, Yahweh, clouds, and judgment. That's, that's why their, their hearts melt within them. Because they know he's coming for, for justice and judging. Nahum 1.3 The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and a storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. There's this connection between God, clouds, and judgment. So let's look at verse 13 again in in Daniel. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. Verse 14 is interesting. This whole passage is interesting. First of all, the Son of Man is, is, is not just the king of Israel. Look at that. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His kingdom is over everyone. 
Verse 14 is interesting also because the word serve. This is, this is written in Aramaic. It's one of the few passages in Scripture that's written in Aramaic. It's actually the biggest chunk of Scripture written in Aramaic. It's not in Hebrew. And, and one of the reasons people think it's written in Aramaic is because that was the popular language of the day, so that everyone could read this. He's not just the king of Israel. The word serve in Aramaic is synonymous with the word worship. And you see this throughout Daniel talking about Yahweh being worshipped and served. Let me read it again with that in mind. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nation, and language should worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Listen. Jesus on the night he was arrested, revealed what he meant when he said, Son of Man. He wasn't referring to the Son of Man throughout the Old Testament. He was referring to the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 14, 13 through 14. And Jesus said, From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was shocking. When Jesus used the title Son of Man over 65 times in the Gospels, he meant that he will sit at the right hand of Yahweh, be king forever, be priest forever, be given a kingdom over the whole earth, given all authority and everlasting dominion, which all peoples, all nations, all languages will worship him. He was claiming to be pre-existent and one day coming in the clouds of heaven to judge the earth. What's very ironic about that is mankind thought they were judging Jesus. He was on trial. They thought they were judging him. In this one statement, he told the high priest, you are the one on trial. I am the final judge. How perfect is that statement? Title, Son of Man. There is Jesus' time, there was no preconceived ideas. Son of Man, no reactions. You know what it gave Jesus an opportunity to do? Fill that title with meaning. Jesus was able to pour meaning into that title. And before the Sanhedrin, he told the world exactly what he meant. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. You think the high priest got what he was saying? No, this is what he, this is what he does in, in Matthew 65. He tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They, they answered, he deserves death. And Sanhedrin got it. <laughs> That's why they asked this final question in Luke twenty two seventy. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? Turn there to Luke twenty two seventy. Back to Luke twenty two, verse seventy. Are you the Son of God then? Are you claiming to be equal with God? It leads us to our third title. 
Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus as the Son of God. One commentator said this about this title. The title Son of God describes a unique father-son relationship within the Trinity. To be the Son, the way Jesus' incarnation was described by Gabriel, is to be divine. The opening verses of John's gospel describes the relationship as an eternal and equal relationship. John says in, in John uh, 1 through 1 through 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. To, say, to be the Son of God, in the way that Jesus described himself, was to be God. Look at verse 70. So they said, Are you the Son of God then? Are you claiming to be God's unique Son? Are you claiming to be equal with God? That's what this, this question implied. And he said to them, You say that I am. Verse 71. They said to him, or the, and then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. In other words, they're saying, your own lips have condemned you. We don't need false witnesses. We don't need anything else. And from this point on, Jesus' fate was sealed. I started the sermon this morning asking, who did Jesus claim to be? Who did Jesus claim to be? It's clear that Jesus didn't claim to just be the Messiah, son of David, a king. Jesus didn't just claim to be the son of man, a pre-existent heavenly being that boldly approaches Yahweh, who is given a dominion of the world, an everlasting kingdom, a king and priest forever. Jesus claimed to be the son of God, equal to God in knowledge, equal to God in power, equal to God in value, yet completely submissive to God in his role as son. Amazing. Amazing. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Knowledge of Holies, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Listen, we as a church better have a high view of Jesus. Or you better have a reverence for Jesus. So my question is, where are you at this morning? Do you believe Jesus was the Messiah? Right, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one that came to die for our sins? Do you believe he is divine? The divine son of God? Do you believe he is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, who will one day come back to judge the world? Do you believe what Jesus claimed about himself? Because listen, your beliefs will determine where you spend eternity. 
put your faith in Christ this morning. If, if you don't know him, don't leave without putting your faith in Christ, that he is the son of God that came, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God. Put your faith in Christ. And listen, if you're a Christian this morning, here's my question for you. Does your life reflect those beliefs? You can claim all those things to be true, but do you live as if those things are true? That Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I feel so unworthy to even be able to to speak to you. Yet it's because of Jesus that we can boldly approach you and boldly approach the throne of grace for what he did on that cross, Lord. It amazes me, Lord. It amazes me who Jesus was. Lord, I know the holiday seasons are coming. Lord, as we we think about, about the baby, Lord, in the manger, God, let us not forget who he is. The gravity of Jesus being the Son of God. The gravity of Jesus being the Son of Man who loved us so much that he came in a manger lived a a life dedicated to you and went to the cross to pay for our sins. Lord, help that be a reality that weighs on us, Lord, that encourages us, that inspires us. God, I pray for our church, Lord. Help us to have a biblical view, a deep view of you. I pray that our thoughts, Lord, are biblical when we think of you. God, I pray that you're with us, Lord. God, thank you. In your son's name, amen.